everything's political now, frankly, like even if you're trying to optimize performance, a lot of the stuff that's going on politically, I think is bad for human performance. Like I, I consider like critical race theory to be um, the opposite of cognitive behavioral therapy, like anti-cognitive mm. behavioral therapy. Welcome back to Mind Matters, everyone. I'm Harrison Cayley, joined as usual by Elon Martin and Adam Daniels. And today we are pleased to have joining us Grant Smith, author of two substacks, H2F Man and The Radical American Mind. Well, links, we'll have a link, we'll have a separate link in the description because I just learned apparently that YouTube like doesn't like Substack links for some reason. So we will have a link to a link tree that includes links to Grant's Substack, Substacks, as well as my own, Luke's, and five other great gentlemen, um, one of whom we've met on Mind Matters before, John Carter, and I don't believe any of the others have been on, but we'll probably have all of them on eventually, because um, Grant also has two podcasts, I believe, so we'll get him to talk about those, one of which I may or may not be involved with. So welcome to Mind Matters, Grant. Um, to start out with, uh, tell us a little, about, a little bit about your substacks and your podcasts that I mentioned. Yeah. First of all, thanks for having me, Harrison. You know, I, I feel like, uh, you know, I feel like you're one of my boys, you know, even though we only know each other off the internet, but, um, like you and the whole tonic seven crew and, um, you know, sad Luke can't be here, but you know, time, time differences and, um, looking forward to talking to, uh, uh, Elon and, and Adam. Right. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so the, the two sub stacks I had, I started one, called H2F man. That's my job in the army is I'm, I'm the holistic health and fitness officer for uh, an army division. And on that note, max duty. So anything I say is my own opinion, not that of the DOD or the army. Okay. So, uh, I started that with the idea of focusing on human performance optimization and barriers to that in the army and how the H2F system can kind of help everybody out in the army get after optimal performance, but also as it applies to everybody, because the same principles apply to everybody. But then uh, I wanted to talk about more political stuff more directly. And I didn't feel like that was appropriate um, for that specific stack um, because I, I mean, everything's political now, frankly, like even if you're trying to optimize performance, a lot of the stuff that's going on politically, I think is bad for human performance. Like I, I consider like critical race theory to be um, the opposite of cognitive behavioral therapy, like anti-cognitive mm. behavioral therapy. And that, I, I read that on Jonathan Haid's uh, blog and that's kind of what the coddling of American mind's about. And uh, so I wanted to start writing about that stuff, a little more controversial, talking about politics, exercising my first amendment rights that I swore an oath to defend. Um, and so I started Radical American Minds to, to get after that stuff. Um, and, you know, at, at times I've thought maybe I could have kept it the same, but I have less than 20% overlap in subscriptions. So um, it, it seems to be good that they're separate, you know, different different strokes for different folks. Um, but yeah. And the uh, the podcasts that you have. Oh, yeah. yeah. So one of them is not mine. It's ours. Right? Oh, it's tonic yes, seven. yes. Yeah, exactly. we, we all got it. Yeah. So um, that that came out of, you know, doing the whole demo station thing. Um, just 
the seven of us that are Substack authors and, you know, would be eight, but unfortunately we lost Jay. We'll get into that, but he's, he's missed. Um, and, you know, we don't all have the exact same opinions on everything, which is really cool. But I think that we all share the same desire to pursue truth above everything else. And like, like the, but, but just chips fall where they may. Like, it's always better to know the truth and deal with the consequences. And there's a lot of people like that. We're not the only seven people in the world that think like that. But mm-hmm. I think we're a nice little functional uh, unit that has different areas of subject matter expertise that complement each other really well. And so looking forward to talking once a week with you guys about whatever random topic of the day. And then the other podcast is fifth generation leadership, which is I, I try and interview leaders from, you know, really it's been military so far, but really I'd, I'd be happy to talk to, talk to anybody kind of in the context of we're in fifth generation warfare you know, battle good versus evil. And so we need leadership on the side of good. And that's complex in fifth generation warfare. So we need fifth generation mm-hmm. leadership. So I partnered up with uh, 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 Sergeant First Class, Ranger instructor dude that uh, was an infantryman, 101st before he got pushed out uh, in conjunction, like medical evaluation board separation, like medical, uh, in addition to like in lieu of getting pushed out over COVID. So both kind of at the same time for him. So we linked up to do that. And so far we've interviewed, you know, retired full bird, you know, active duty, Navy, Navy, like people from all branches. And uh, it, that's been, that's been fun. Well, okay. So I want to get into that a little bit or, or the background to that, but just a little bit of PR will have links to, to both the, both of the shows because at the time that we're recording this um, tonic seven there's just one show up but probably by the time this goes up there'll probably be two or three maybe so we'll get uh, links to both of your shows uh, in the description because YouTube likes YouTube links I I would assume so <laughs> so I'll put those in there and so a bit about the background for the the leadership the fifth gen leadership show. Um, and some of the topics you mentioned, like health. So as the as the health guy for your division, um, of course, when the vaccine mandate started in the military, um, I know that was a, a big a big thing for you, and you've written about it. So maybe tell us like what your experience was of that whole thing, and what you decided to do about it, and what you ended up doing. So my experience it was it was really weird. Because our commanding general was putting out periodic uh, messages to the force saying, hey, you know, all of our medical personnel here are 100 percent on board with this vaccine. You know, you got issues. You talk to any of our medical people. And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm one of your medical people. But the thing is, is I'm, I'm a physical therapist by trade. So it's like this is outside my scope of practice. Medications. Like we can prescribe some in the military, but it's like non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. Um, you know, stuff like that, uh, vitamin D, uh, not vaccines. And I've always been like, I'll just tell you a little bit of background of what made me skeptical off the bat. Uh, I took freshman year of high school biology class and I had a really great teacher and she taught us about retroviruses, right? Which are, are, 
RNA viruses and how they replicate so quickly. And it's like, well, that's why we don't have a vaccine for the common cold, right? Is because they replicate quickly and there's a lot of errors when they replicate. And so they mutate fast. Um, and then knowing that kind of growing up and then being required to get the flu shot annually, I was always kind of chagrined by that. And I'd go, you know, like, look, let me look at the literature here. And um, literature doesn't really show that the flu shot's very effective most of the time. And there's randomized controlled trials that show that vitamin D supplementation works just as well. Um, and yet they don't mandate vitamin D supplementation. So I always thought that that was kind of stupid. But then when they deployed this particular vaccine with a novel technology, uh, I thought, eh, I don't know. That doesn't seem right. And my wife didn't really give me an option. She was adamant as early as March of 2020. She was like, they're going to come up with a vaccine for this. You're not taking it. And so usually what I do with my, my wife is because I, I respect her opinions and stuff, but I, I like to be like, I'm Mr. Science guy. Like I'm going to go look into it. I'll pull up the literature. I'll do a deep dive and I'll, I'll explain why it's, it's okay. And <laughs> I, I tried to, I did that with this and I found out that it's just not okay. You know, and we could talk for hours and hours and hours about how stupid uh, it, it was then how they got pediatricians and people that they really ought to know better, you know, with the, like, especially like vaccinating pregnant women, when that wasn't the pop, that population wasn't even the randomized control trial. And they're like, it's safe. It's like, we can't even do battlefield acupuncture, which is where they take like little acupuncture needles. And there's little parts of the ear earlobe that correspond to different parts of the body that are designed to address pain. Well, one of the parts of the body is the womb, right? So that's contraindicated for pregnant women, putting a little acupuncture needle in the earlobe. And now we're talking about novel mRNA technology. So really, you guys, like just, they were totally inconsistent, which uh, like that's the center of my spirituality, right? Like my, my spiritual rules as a not traditionally religious person is don't be a hypocrite and don't be delusional. And I mean, I respect my enemies that aren't hypocritical and delusional more than I respect allies that are really hypocritical and delusional. Mm -hmm. And um, they were being both, you know, and so it, it violated this central component or central essence of my being. And so I submitted a religious accommodation request uh, because I knew that the, the medical ones, they, they didn't care about the medical rationale. I mean, if they're willing to vaccinate pregnant women, um, when it hasn't even been studied on that population at all, then they, they don't care. And that, that bore out where, you know, I have colleagues like major Sam Sigalov and, uh, Teresa Long and, uh, Pete Chambers, like all, all army physicians that, um, you know, essentially like Sam's had the worst of it, having his license threatened and his clinical privileges revoked. I mean, he's a physician. He had his clinical privileges revoked by a nurse because the commander of the hospital that he was at was a nurse. And so, like, I, I knew that that wasn't going to fly, talking reason on the medical side. Um, and so, you know, we have under our First Amendment a robust right to uh, freedom of religious expression and the Religious Freedom and Restoration Act. 
And so I learned a lot about that and the background of that from Robert Barnes by following, you know, Robert Barnes and, and uh, David Freiheit on Locals, like on the Viva Barnes Law Locals.com. So that's a that's another great community. But he shared all the information about how that works. Um, the Equal Opportunity Handbook on Religious Discrimination, which provides a, a pretty good definition of what constitutes a protected religious belief. Because I'll tell you, you go in and, and they have this whole process where they're like, all right, the, the chaplain's going to interview. And before you even get interviewed by the chaplain, they're publishing documents saying, hey, look, here's this expert from uh, this religious faith. And here's this expert from this religious faith. And they say the vaccine's okay. Now, we're not saying don't submit a religious competition. We're just saying that, you know, if you're of these faiths, th this person says that it's fine. And it's like, that's not how this works. You know, it's <laughs> so an that, individual. Uh, just to yeah. interject real quickly, was that a, was that just like pamphlets or something that they gave you? Or was that information that the chaplain would let you know? So this uh, is something that was pushed down through command channels. So, okay. you know, they sent it out to commanders like that. Like we have different echelons, right? So. Mm -hmm. Somebody put together a packet at headquarters department of the army that had that and then other surrounding information. And then also there was an order for the, the vaccine mandate, like the military vaccine mandate had an order came out of DOD and then each individual service had their orders and they got pushed down each, each echelon and at each echelon, things might've gotten tweaked, but on the army side, that was a product that was definitely included because I received it in an email. And so it's something that commanders could then give the soldiers and say, oh, here, you know, and, mm -hmm. you know, when you're dealing with people with, uh, you know, advanced degree scientific background, it's like, OK, you know, I'm not necessarily going to take that seriously. But a lot of the people that didn't want uh, that, that had a deeply held belief that they were mm -hmm. willing to face um, a ton of of scrutiny and um adverse attention uh and and a lot of them received frankly uh what i would call abuse you know i had a, I have a colleague that was a sergeant first class that uh was was puking blood because he got ulcers because he was so stressed out um from the way that he was getting treated and uh yeah in that environment they you know it's every single thing that they did um was to try and maximize vaccine uptake and mm -hmm. the military wasn't different than any other institution in the West. Like that was the name of the game. They were using every social nudge, like social psychology, social influence technique that they had. They had experts that were hired and paid to do that. Mm -hmm. And they did that. Some of them, I think in the UK re expressed regret about it after the fact. Um, so you, you guys know how that went down because everybody saw it and the military you know, it is it is a more it is an environment where your bosses have more coercive authority over you than other environments. And so especially if you're junior, you know, you might not be able to get messed with statutorily, but there the processes for redress are like the inspector general process or like equal opportunity. And when it came to the, the shop mandate, people just didn't take those complaints seriously when they got filed so people filed them but it's like uh you know we're not going to take this seriously because that's to do with the shop mandate so there's a lot of uh 
a lot of people that take initiative at the lowest level to, to do what they think is the right thing to get after the mission. And so this is, this is one of the big problems that we face. And especially in the army, I don't, I can't speak as well as the other services. I think it's similar, but we have all these requirements all the time and they're bureaucratic requirements. And you get to the point where to get the job done, you have to cut corners. And so people get used to that. Um, there's a great paper by uh, Stephen Wong and Leonard Garris called uh, Lying to Ourselves, Dishonesty in the Army Profession that was published in 2015 about this and, and described it as an ethical numbing. And so people get used to lying so much that they, they don't even think that they're lying. Like, and you can confront them about it directly. And uh, my boss right now actually is a really great guy that he was involved in some of the people that were interviewed for that paper. And he said, yeah, they sat down and they're like, yeah, you guys are lying in, in these ways. And they're like, no, 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 no. We, we have the highest integrity. We're army officers, you know? And then it's like, well, do you do this, this, this? And they're like, oh, <laughs> yeah, we do that all the time. They're like, wow, <laughs> you know? So it, it really is this a steady eroding of ethical standards to the point where you feel like bending the rules a lot of times is what you it's the right thing, you know, because mm -hmm. the bureaucracy is stupid. And so with the shot mandate, what that really comes down to is that it was always illegal because there was never an FDA approved vaccine that was made available. And so this is, you know, widely known in the, in the community of people that didn't end up getting the vaccine cognitive dissonance, I think keeps it from being known more widely than that. But yeah, no FDA approved vaccine was available. They can't mandate an emergency use authorized product without presidential approval. And it's like they had, I mean, the president could have signed that, but that might have changed liabilities for the manufacturers if they had done that. And so they weren't willing to assume that risk of changing the liability standard because with the EUA products, they're completely absolved of any responsibility. And so a lot of people like, went rah rah look this is an illegal order and very early on i was like look they don't care you know so like they, a lot of them know but they, to them that's a technicality because the fda published that little thing and they're like they're uh, medically interchangeable but legally distinct and so they took that medically interchangeable and they're like oh well you guys are just trying to get out of this out of some legal technicality and it's like well the law is important and the constitution is important. And with respect to the law in this case, it is important because that legal liability means that that vaccine manufacturer has zero incentive to make sure that it's not injuring the recipients, mm -hmm. um, especially when the government's the, they got a guaranteed buyer uh, in the government. So, you know, all these things kind of conspired and went on and it was a, an awkward time because yeah, like I, I was the holistic health and fitness officer, right? And I wasn't getting it. My uh, one of my colleagues, my my primary care provider, so like my doc, like didn't get it, and uh, so it's like dude, no. And I mean, I know I talked to all the medical because they're they were all my peers. Like these are all people that I worked with, and not one of them said, you know what, Grant, you're wrong, um, on on the risk benefit. Cause that's what I said from the beginning. I was like, we're going to look back at this. And I think the risk benefit is going to be the absolute risk reduction is going to be negative for the active duty military population. So young, healthy folks, I think it's going to be negative because the risk from COVID was so low. 
that the vaccine would have to be so freaking effective and so safe in order for it to have uh, a positive absolute risk reduction. I was like, and the amount of time that they did it. And then I looked at the clinical trial data and they had 23% more people die in the vaccine arm. And they that was after only like two or three months. And they got rid of that control arm by letting everybody cross over and get vaccinated. So like even from the tr- like the randomized trials that had a bunch of fraud alleged with somebody that worked at the trial site, you know, Brooke Jackson, even with all that, the trials showed that it sucked. And, you know, like there's all these little games that people that aren't familiar with clinical research, you know, it's not as obvious. But when you pick a scientific endpoint, like severe disease, dude, they didn't pick that scientific endpoint beforehand. They picked it afterwards. They were like crunched the numbers and they're like, okay, how, do, how can we make it so that the numbers look as good as possible? They're like, okay, well, it looks like you have peak, like most of the adverse events been in the two weeks between first dose and two weeks after the second dose. And so what we'll do is we'll make it two weeks after the second dose. They're not fully vaccinated until then. So that way, you know, somebody gets hospitalized the day after their second dose and, oh, that's, you know, they, they were only partially vaccinated or after their first dose, like, oh, they were unvaccinated. Um, and, and that happened. Um, I mean, that, that happened to uh, a National Guard soldier that was watching our, uh, uh, our, our daughter, you know, at the, at the gym. Like she worked at the gym and she had gotten vaccinated because she was getting pressure to from her unit, even though she didn't want to. And she was pregnant. And I was like, look, you, you know, you don't have to because you're pregnant. And she's like, oh, you know, I don't know. So she went and and she got it done. And uh, yeah, she got hospitalized. It was actually while she was watching her doctor. She's like, I got to go. Went to the hospital, had elevated troponin levels, uh, supraventricular tachycardia. And so they had to do like radio nerve ablation. So she got myocarditis, you know, um, and <laughs> it's just it's insane. And it's like I tell people this story and they're like, eh, yeah. But I, the reason I bring that up in this context is because they told her that she got COVID, came down with symptoms within 24 hours of getting the vaccine. And they're like, oh, no, you just got COVID. It's a complication from COVID. And it's like, wow. Yeah. Unvaccinated COVID case. Yeah. 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 Unvaccinated COVID hospitalization. Mm-hmm. No less. So, um, you know, just seeing it all unfold, having those priors, because, like, I understand how uh, – confirmation bias does its does its work like i get it you know um like i, I said all my friends like uh, i gotta give one ex- exception to that one of my friends that's a physical therapist did say that i shouldn't have a physical therapy license because i wasn't getting a shot um so i don't know if he still feels that way but um i feel like he owes me an apology uh but the the cognitive dissonance just makes it so that if you trust the institution you know, how you, like everything that you perceive, everything is just, it was just a little too subtle. The injuries are a little too spread out. I mean, it's not more than, uh, I, I think the people that get seriously injured, it's anywhere from one, one in a hundred to one in 10,000. Like, you know, so are you really going to notice that? Especially if you have the cognitive dissonance where it's like, oh, well, it could have been COVID or it's long COVID, you know, it's, you know, there, there's just enough. It's just low enough that uh, and spread out enough that it's just not not obvious. And we're going to know at some point, like right now, we have good, good stuff that's getting published to show us this, the scope of the adverse events. 
Um, and so eventually we're going to know, we're going to know by age group who had what happened and how common it was. And by then it won't be controversial. And it's just going to be that crap where they're like, Oh, nobody could have known. Like, just like with the housing crisis, like nobody <laughs> foresaw this coming. This was like totally out of nowhere. Except for the <laughs> thousands of people that were telling you that this was going to happen. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Grant, so, so I imagine, well, this is what it, so not being in the military and not having, you know, a lot of friends with inside access, you know, telling me what was going on during this whole time, um, from reading the news, just like the headlines, the impression I got is that, okay, so the vax mandates came along and that, um, a whole, like a significant number of people basically got kicked out for not taking the vaccine. Right. Over 8,000. And then over 8,000. Was that in just the army or the, or the entire, like, uh, that's across services? DOD for the people that actually okay. got separated 8,000 across the DOD. Okay. And now, um, the, the mandate was lifted. How, how long ago was that? That was just fairly recently, right? It was a few months ago. Just a few months ago. Yeah. It was the act of Congress. So they got it put into yeah. the national defense authorization act. And so, so how's the situation changed? How, how is it now? Like what, what happened to all those 8,000? Will any of, are any of them coming back or like, how does that work now? Is it like retroactively? Oh, well you were, you were okay. Retro, like retroactively. So, so the big news right now, and uh, this guy that goes by the pseudonym Danny over at uh, terminal CWO. So trmlx.com uh, is covering this. Like the big thing that's going on right now is they, they took a bunch of national guard, uh, service members, like, so not just army, I think in the Marine Corps, or I, I don't know. I don't know about like air guard stuff. Anyway, in the army, I'll just tell you army. Cause I understand army. Right. And the guard, they had a bunch of people where they, where they stopped paying them. And they were like, you're not coming to drill. Um, like you're, you're getting separated. And now that the mandate's been rescinded, they're saying, Hey, you've been, uh, had unauthorized absence and they're trying to go on. <laughs> Bathroom for for not showing up to drill when they were explicitly told like now you're not coming and not getting paid and and now they're also like at the last minute saying hey you got to show up at drill like in two weeks and some of these people went and got other jobs and moved and stuff because they were told like that this is it you're done and so that's happening in the guard mostly because the guards implementation timeline for the mandate was behind active duty so. Most of the active duty people that got separated, they're just completely separated. And so now that they're completely separated, I think some of them have been getting like texts and stuff from recruiters saying, hey, you know, the mandate's been rescinded. But, um, you know, for all those folks, if they had wanted to stay in, you know, they would have submitted a religious accommodation request. And the only reason that I didn't get separated, frankly, is because they the army slow rolled uh, denying the religious accommodation request. So my initial mm -hmm. request was denied, but that took almost a year. And then I sent an appeal and I wrote up my, my appeal is on, um, is on one of my stacks. Yeah. And, uh, that, that one never got adjudicated. The mandate got rescinded before it got adjudicated. And that's most people, but there are a couple people that they actually got their initial request and their appeal denied and actually got separated before the mandate got rescinded. But very was there few anyone, was there anyone whose appeal was or whose request or appeal was successful? Yeah. So there were, but those were people that were already getting out. 
So it's like they had a retirement date or something. So there were, and they used those in court to say like, oh, look, we granted a couple. And it's like, okay, guys, you know, so like really, really the, like the current, the current administration, the way that they see law and the constitution is very much like uh, nullification is a legitimate course of action. Um, One of the lawyers, a guy named Casson, works for the DOJ, uh, said in court that we don't have constitutional rights as service members unless we sue and win. You know, so it's like the presumption isn't that we have rights. Like we actually have to sue the government and win in order to be able to exercise our constitutional rights. And that's that's the mentality and that's the mindset. And you can see that with the um, the eviction moratorium imposed by the CDC, right? Where you can't evict people off your property. It's like that was clearly unconstitutional. They knew it was unconstitutional the whole time, but they were like, well, make a stop. You know, like that they're just they're like that. This is how the game is played. So, you know, what? Let's do it. And so it's like they, you know, they they knew the score with the interchangeability. Um, you know, our secretary of defense didn't ever go on record and say that we could take an, an EUA shot. Like he's hands clean on that. He said the mandate was only for FDA approved vaccines. All right. And so one of this lady named Terry Ardern, who was, uh, you know, high up in in DOD, I forget her position exactly, but she wrote a memo that that said, "Hey, you can you can use the EUA shot. You can mandate it because they're interchangeable, right? Even though they're legally distinct." And so that might get her in some hot water eventually. Like maybe if administration changes, like ten years down the road, who knows? Um, but probably not. But the SecDef, like he's he's peasy clean on this, like because he he didn't say that you could mandate the EUA version. They just depended on the ignorance of people at every level. But I mean, I, I tried to point that out to my leadership, you know, and I said, Hey, like they're legally distinct. And I talked to um, one of the lawyers, you know, that was on our installation and he got back to me and said, Oh no, they, they have community. You know, the public health commander says they have community. It's like, no, they didn't. That was a lie. You know? So um, I don't think that I don't think that attorney lied to me. I think the public health commander lied. And I think he knew. I think he knew that he lied. And I think a lot of that happened. And I think they did it because of that ethical numbing where they're like, well, this is going to save lives. And it's like, well, you know, I, I think it killed more people than it saved. But that's going to it's going to take a lot, a lot longer to prove that definitively. I think we have the data now. I just don't think anybody's looking at it. And, you know, on the data side, there's there's a little wrinkle that, um, you know, Matthew Crawford's written about this. You know, we have this defense medical epidemiological database that's supposed to track this stuff. But, um, you know, there were, there were issues where the, the data was wrong because of a server migration. And we're in the process of transitioning our electronic medical records in the military, too, like right in the middle of this. And the new system doesn't the fidelity isn't as good as the old system with data. So, you know, there's a lot of plausible deniability in terms of the data, mm-hmm. but I think at the end of the day, we're going to find that, you know, probably just from myocarditis, pulmonary embolism and stroke alone, uh, 
the consequences of the the vaccine outweighed any benefits because you know the benefits in the mil- for the military population like they they could only be so much they could only be so small because we had such so few covid deaths uh prior to the vaccine rollout and then the vaccine rolled out and then it the number of covid deaths that we had in the military uh you know almost tripled like in the in the few months after the vaccine rolled out and so that that goes into that same thing with the category error where it's like well you know we have something published in military times that says none of them were fully vaccinated and it's like okay well i know what that can mean um and then a follow-up one that said you know only two of them were partially vaccinated but you know did they investigate their true vaccination status or did they just go based on what was in the electronic medical record which you know the new the new record uh the record system and mhs genesis is not great and if they had gotten it done off post you know it wouldn't be reflected in any of the systems um and even if they got it done on post it would have had to get uploaded and like there's stuff that needs to get done it's like did they check all the relevant systems did they ask the family members and I, i'd say probably not so my assumption is is that just because of the timing you look at the timing of when the vaccine rolled out and the massive spike in covid deaths um but then then you got the delta wave too so it, it just it complicates the picture just enough that if you are of the opinion that the institutions are all right and they're all doing great and Pfizer's like a really great company that saved hundreds of millions of lives then you know i'm i'm not going to be able to convince you um but maybe read the real anthony fauci <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe even get a chance to vote for rfk junior yeah yeah that's yeah. a possibility coming up uh so so that was um that was your experience uh, for the past, you know, two, three years or however long it's been. It's been three years. Good God. Um, so that's been kind of like your experience, you know, up until now with just the COVID situation and everything. Um, but you're talking about, you know, fifth generational warfare. Was there any inkling for you that that was going on prior to all of this? Or was was COVID just the, the real catalyst that kind of like um, opened your eyes to... To oh, that yeah. phenomenon. That's a good question. So I'm I'm kind of weird. Like I I spent my first few years in the military <laughs> more or less an anarcho-capitalist, and I still might kind of uh, be on some level. And I think that if I am, then it's because I believe that you know the non-aggression principle is largely consistent with the Constitution. You know, like th- those two things can be. You know, there's there's consilience there where you know a certain interpretation and it's like you look, look at ron paul in his farewell speech and saying hey we got to look at um the role of government and the idea of an institution having a monopoly on force and rejecting it that's like well that's anarcho-capitalism you know i i like the idea of you know not having rulers but having leaders and you know the mm-hmm. more more of an organic relationship um and in the military, that's how leadership's supposed to be anyway, right? We're not supposed to rely on the coercive tools that we have in the toolbox to make people follow orders. We're supposed to rely on leadership. And then that other stuff is just in case we fail at leadership. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of weird in that regard. Like I found Austrian economics and stuff uh, like 
right going into when I commissioned and that I became commissioned as an infantry officer and then went to school, uh, like infantry, infantry school. And I was out there and I was talking about all this stuff back then. Cause this is like 2010, 2011. And, you know, I was like, you know, the global war on terror is like, it's BS. <laughs> like this is just a huge waste of time, money and resources. And everybody was like, yeah. shut up, dude. <clears throat> <laughs> it was, it was bad. It was here? bad from around. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I was yeah. in a rough place. And in fact, um, they they did this thing back then, and they would say, "Hey, if you aren't one hundred percent committed and on board, you need to raise your hand. You need to let someone know." And I was like, "All right, you know." So <laughs> we had these uh, platoon tacks. So they were captains that. Um, were, were in charge of developing us as, as young lieutenants and overseeing our training. And so I let mine know, I was like, Hey, you know, I, I got a problem. Like, I think this is all BS. And so he came over to my house and sat down with me and he was essentially like, yeah, you know, but you signed your name <laughs> on the dotted line, you know, yeah. now, in fact, like he told me a story. He was like, you know, we had these, uh, in Afghanistan, these jingle buses, so they're kind of like the double-decker buses they got in the UK, but they decorate them all up. And they pack them absolutely full of people. And I think he said hundreds. You know, if I remember correct, he said hundreds of people were in this bus. And they have escalation of force and rules of engagement uh, with respect to vehicle-borne IEDs. And there was a 240 Bravo gunner at like a security checkpoint or something. And this bus didn't follow the rules, and he lit it up. And this dude was responsible for going in, like doing the investigation and cleaning it up. And he said, there's, you know, a bunch of bodies cut in half. And, uh, and he was like, yeah, for, for nothing. And I was like, uh, okay. And he's like, yeah, but you know, sometimes like they'll be out on patrol and there'll be like a kid and you give them like a candy bar and you see their face light up, you know, and that, that really helps out. I'm like that, that doesn't help at all. Um, that's not even close to being proportional, but I mean, he, he was, I, I listened to that. So like what I, what I realize now is like, you can be like, Hey, I'm a conscientious objector. And honestly, like I'm with respect to initiating force on behalf of the government, I'm pretty much a conscientious objector, like, but I'm a medical provider now. So it's not an issue. And that's one of the reasons the COVID thing hit me so hard is because I, you know, I was not right for the infantry. Like my head wasn't right for it because I, I didn't believe it. I, I saw myself essentially as a, as a mercenary. And I had, I had hoped, I think, even when I was starting out, before I learned about Austrian economics and stuff, that um, the global war on terror would be winding down. and But there would be a need for some, like, some other need in the future that was like more legitimate, right? Some legitimate national security need, whereas I, I didn't see terrorism as an existential threat. And I studied it as my undergrad. That's the conclusion I came to. You know, I, I lived in Egypt for a year and, you know, learned some Arabic and, um, you know, took classes on national security. And I was like, yeah, this, this is not helping. And, um, but I thought maybe down the road, you know, the Constitution, there's a legitimate need for national security. And uh, now I, after the Austrian economics thing, it's like, I think that less, you know, it's like, I, I don't think the government really has any incentives to provide national security. They have 
an incentive to inflate threats. And I think they have incentives to actually make it worse because war is the health of the state. But wasn't a problem for me as a physical therapist. I saw low-hanging fruit. I saw an opportunity to help soldiers, which is one of the main reasons I joined in the first place. We were getting broken off doing stupid stuff for physical training. So like the mission's the mission. People are going to get hurt and they're going to get killed doing the mission. Very little control over that. But if people are getting hurt doing stuff that is ineffective for physical training, that seems like an easy fix. I mean, it seems like a possible fix, right? And so I, I figured I'd do that. I'd, I'd go and like physical therapists in the army, they're leading the effort in trying to modernize what people do for fitness. Basically, we need to do more resistance training and less distance running. And it's not because distance running is bad. It's because some people are, a lot of people these days, especially are bad at distance running. So you take somebody that's an excellent runner. It's a great uh, modality for them. It's a great fitness modality. It's great for you. If you're good at, got good mechanics, you know, good hip strength, uh, good foot strength. It's awesome. Right. But if you are obese and you in weak, it will destroy your body. You know, that basically that that's what it comes down to. So we got to do other stuff. We got to essentially get people in shape to be able to run and some and recognize that some people just aren't going to be able to get there, especially in the regular army. And so we got to come up with alternatives for them to maintain their fitness, pass the annual fitness tests and, and be good to go. But that's even an uphill battle. But anyways, I'm in the, I was in the middle of that fight. Everything made sense. It's a hard fight, but it's one that I think that we're eventually we could win. And then this, the mandate happened right in the middle of it. And I'm just like, God, it's like all over again. Right. Yeah. I, I felt like <laughs> I'm I, a conscientious you know, objector. Yeah. Again. <laughs> Damn it. yeah. And, um, but at the same time, you know, we all swore an oath to the Constitution. And you, I think it, it was far and away the most straightforward way that I could fulfill my oath because they were infringing upon the First Amendment rights of soldiers. You know, when, you know, closing down uh, indoor church services, whew, that is a First Amendment violation. You know, like, oh, well, the medical needs Trump that. No, 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 no. No, that's unconstitutional. That's presumed to be an unlawful order. And they did it. And how they were supposed to, like the, the, the reason that everybody that had a deeply held conviction uh, deserved religious accommodation is because in order to deny it, you need something called strict scrutiny. You need to prove, like the, the government needs to prove that there's a compelling interest that not that, that if you provide this accommodation, that it poses a grave risk of serious harm. And the, the evidentiary standards, they couldn't do it. They can't even come close because for a young, healthy service member, especially once the natural immunity stuff came out and the CDC's own data was showing that natural immunity was as good or superior to vaccine only, you know, they, they, they couldn't do it. And they were trying anyways. And it's like, you guys are breaking your oaths. This is very straightforward. And so what I realized is like that whole check the block ethical numbing thing, it's gotten so bad that it applies to the constitution now. And so just standing up and saying, no, I'm not doing it. And then having the policy reversed. Um, but the thing is, is I think winning wouldn't have been having the policy reversed. It would have been having 
because they're allowed to enact that policy, you know, but they, they couldn't do treat the religious accommodations that way. And then also like it was unlawful without the president, uh, you know, saying that we had to, in spite of it being only EUA. And, you know, now those EUA products have been taken off the market entirely. So spike vax and, and community, the Moderna and Pfizer fully approved versions of the vaccines, they will never be produced. Like they were, they were approved on paper. They were never produced, never distributed. And they never will be now because the, you know, the bivalent uh, booster is now considered to be the primary series single dose. Um, so those legacy ones, they're gone. They will never have them. It was only ever uh, a way to pretend to the American people like they had the option of getting an FDA approved vaccine. So Grant, um, it would be great, uh, either this time around or next time, um, to talk about tonic intersectionality and late stage bureaucracy. Cause I think those are really some worthwhile, cool ideas that merit, uh, some examination, but real quick, I wonder if you can give us your perspective on this Marine, uh, who was very out. I think he was a Marine. It was about a year ago, uh, when the U S withdrew from Afghanistan, um, or were forced to, uh, he was very outspoken about accountability, which is a, a big theme in, in your blog as well. And, um, and was kind of irate, uh, over the hypocrisy of, you know, people of his rank and lower being, uh, held to task for all sorts of things, but, um, but, but people of higher station and rank, uh, including, I guess, command, uh, were, were not being held accountable for what was a, a debacle. Um, at least that were the optics of it. Maybe there was some, you know, larger intention to have uh, the U.S. pull out of Afghanistan so that resources could be channeled to what they thought would be a conflict in Ukraine. I don't know. There's some speculation about that. But I, I wonder if you can just give some insight into what yourself and and uh, and people you were in touch with were were thinking and and saying to each other about this guy who was so outspoken about accountability accountability so that, thanks for that question um yeah i i was uh happy to see that so you're talking about lieutenant colonel Stu scheller mm. and so i'll just give you my perspective on it so the first video that he did uh was from the heart you know he was like the you know significant emotional experience because uh one of those marines was somebody that he knew personally and um, you know, it's just, it's just heart wrenching, you know? And I think that everybody that served in Afghanistan felt that, you know, I never, I never served in Afghanistan, so I can't, I can't say how it feels, but I can, I can, you know, empathize, you know, I can imagine it would be infuriating the idea that, um, and that it wasn't only that, like what, what came out after that with, you know, the sniper team having the bomber, that, um, you know, that took those Marines lives. Um, and then, you know, a, a ton of other folks, uh, they had them ID'd and they had them lined up for a shot. And, you know, because of the rules of engagement, they're like, nah, or, or they didn't say no. They said, Oh, we're going to find out, you know, this, the battalion commander that was in charge said, I don't know. You know, by the time they tried to figure it out, it was, 
you know, it's too late. So um, there are a lot of clearly obvious failures in the way that we came out of Afghanistan. And I just don't get why. I mean, I do, I do get it. It's, it's just political. It's the idea that like, we don't have to say that we did anything wrong. Like I see it as a flex, like, Hey, we got so much power that we don't, you know, it's, it's obvious that it, it, you know, it could have been handled more professionally, but Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter. You can't do anything. Like we did it. Perfect. Say something, you know, and, uh, it would be too easy for them not to do that because we in the army or in the, in the military, we have after action reviews and there's always sustains and improves. There's things that you did well and things that you could improve on. So that like they could have even handled it politically and said, you know, it was a challenging time. You know, there, these are some of the things that we, you know, we reviewed it and you know, the rules of engagement and there's some things that we could have done better and it resulted in tragedy, but like tragedies happen in war. All right. Um, but these are some of the things that we we did really well. Like we evacuated this huge number of people in this very small amount of time. Um, and they they could have played it like that politically, but they're just like, no, nah, it was perfect. And it's, you know, I I can tell you stuff that I've heard second and third hand um, is that, you know, there are veterans that have significant disability that, that gave a lot of their own bodies to that fight. Um, people that have lost loved ones. And, you know, I know some of them are dealing with that loss and, and asking themselves what it was for. Mm-hmm. How would you not ask yourself what it was for? When we went into the country and the Taliban only controlled a certain percentage, they were our stated enemy. And then we leave and now they control 100%. How could you say that it was not a waste of time? Um, like it's unavoidable, but the thing is, is people aren't talking about it mm-hmm. and that's like, they're not talking about it openly. It's all behind closed doors. So like, that's the thing with the senior leader accountability is there was never a reckoning where it was like, look, we need to address this. We need to look at, um, you know, our, our role in conflict and try and try and find our purpose again because the global war on terror had a narrative to it you know it had a narrative that that worked like fight the terrorists over there so we don't have to fight them over here i mean 9 11 happened like and, and you can speculate this you know i think i just saw something today about how two of the folks that like flew the planes into the towers were uh you know at one point cia trained yeah um not to say that they they were they caused it you know but I mean, I wouldn't put it past them. I don't know. It, regardless, the narrative was very straightforward. We were attacked. We went and we retaliated, right? Fight them over there so we don't got to fight them over here. And, you know, that kept a lot of people going. And now that that, now that narrative is gone and they're not even trying to replace it with something cohesive, like, well, we got to go fight in Ukraine. And it's like, why, why, you know what? Cause Russia. Yeah. But, but even, fight even the Russians over like, there. Well, what, yeah. What, what did Russia do? Right. How is what Russia did any different than what we did in Iraq? You know? So it's like, it's, 
then that narrative's poison because that's like we're like all the Iraq veterans are like, you know, because everybody recognizes there weren't weapons of mass destruction. Like everybody knows that now. Right? <clears throat> so, um, that that's that's kind of why I'm trying to start conversations about it. Um, not because I necessarily think there's a solution, but what we have right now is not tenable. Like you have to have a purpose for what you're doing. And mm-hmm. it's really difficult to say how we're supporting and defending the constitution, preparing for large scale combat operations with Russia or China over Taiwan. Like nobody's really talking about why and like what the strategic reason is that like we have to protect Taiwan or like why the Ukraine is, you know, God's gift to the world and just such a great democracy that needs to be protected at all costs. Like, like they're not even trying to craft some sort of persuasive narrative. And I think, like, I think that an an effort would at least is, is warranted. I, I don't think that they can do it, but they're not even trying, you know, which just, and it's, it's having an impact. I think that we have a spiritual crisis in the military and it's one of the reasons for the recruiting and retention issues that we're facing is, is related to that. And it's related to the COVID vaccine mandate and it's related to critical race theory type stuff. Um, it all comes down to this spiritual conflict where um, people have a certain, like you need, you need to have purpose. You need to know why you're doing what you're doing, uh, especially because the, the military is hard, like training and being effective in the military, like military training, if it's effective, it's, it's difficult to get it done. It's difficult to be productive and get tough, realistic training knocked out in a huge bureaucracy. You know, people need to assume risk. There's all sorts of things that need to happen. And, you know, people just don't have the energy to make those things happen if, if they don't have a compelling reason to. Mm-hmm. Well, added to that list is the actual, um, the actual health and, and fitness of people. Like, uh, so again, from the outside looking in, I, I remember, I can't even remember the exact headlines, but something like some, some ridiculous percentage of people can't even qualify to, you know, to be in, to, to, to get into the military because they're so out of shape. Um, I should have looked up the headline before oh, I, I think yeah, what uh, was if it? I'm remembering correctly, it was something like 20, like only 20% of the actual uh, military aged people yeah. were fit enough to be able like to qualify for um, like re- recruitment or something like that. It was, it was from what I recall, and you might yeah, be yeah. talking about something, no, that, something different. No, it's the same thing. Uh, yeah. It was basically like something only like maybe 20% of like, you know, 18 to 35 or whatever it yeah. is, like only 20% of people are actually fit enough to pass the, the physical, yeah, the physical exam. Yeah, the, yeah. So yeah. What, what do you think about that? Or do you have any, any thoughts on that? Maybe we can get into yeah, some fitness a, stuff. Yeah. It's a huge problem. So like, the whole reason I got into this stuff is because all of a sudden I felt like I couldn't do my job unless I addressed it, you know, because it, the, the purpose and meaning thing ties into all the positive health behaviors that underlie optimal human performance. And, you know, it's like you're working with patients, you're trying to, you know, teach people what to do, what to eat, like all that stuff's hard and you're not going to do it unless you're freaking motivated and you're not going to be motivated unless you think that you're a part of a 
a part of a competent organization, frankly, that is is capable of excellence. And so you want to, you know, you you want to achieve excellence so that you can be a part of this great organization. And there's units like that still in the military, but um, I like the regular army. I I don't think people feel like it's uh, like it's the the picture of excellence. But but to your question about you know overall eligibility being so low. I mean, this has been a, a progressive issue for years and years, you know, because obesity is one of the things that knocks people out. But the other thing is mental health diagnoses. Mm. And so like that, the whole thing with CRT being reverse cognitive behavioral therapy, like that is having an impact. You know, more and more people are having uh, being diagnosed with mental health disorders and being put on medications that make them unqualified to serve. And so now I think they're looking at potentially being able to waive those things because a lot of them you can't waive, but they're looking at uh, waivers for, for that kind of thing because they, they can't get the numbers, but um, yeah, obesity, mental health disorders, um, like you name it, we're contending with that. But I think even worse than that is that people that are eligible aren't interested, you know, the highest performing youth, are like, no, I'm too good for that. You know, um, I, I, re- I really think that's what's going on. Where I think maybe some, like a few high speeds are like thinking, oh, I want to do special forces or, you know, do, do like be, be special operations. I think you got a few people like that, but I don't think anybody like wants to, feels like they're, uh, you know, I don't know anything special like there's by, a like there's a purpose in. behind it i think that you know it can dovetail in kind of what you were saying earlier about like um you know the the loss of the narrative um the loss of meaning in in the purpose for for what's going on um not just in the middle east but but within the the u.s military as a whole there when you lose that that overarching reason for being well, it's like, what's the point? And it's the same thing with exercise. Exercise is hard. It's uncomfortable. It's pain. It's physically painful to do, but people can do it and people will do it. They just have to have a reason for it. And if you're not giving people a, if you're not giving people a reason or allowing them to come up with their own reason, um, that they can actually justify, then, then why do it? Like, well then, so, so why do it? And then, Coupled with that is the fact that people are in general less healthy, in general less fit. So you've got a smaller percentage of the population that's fit enough. Mm-hmm. So you've got like, so in, at any time you're going to have a, like a small percentage of the population that is like in excellent shape and excellent fitness, excellent health, you know, that will qualify. You make that even smaller and make the, make the reason for joining like less, uh, make it have less magnetic attraction power to it and then a lot of the a lot of the the kind of just more average people um are less less average now <laughs> and and have so you just you you all of those things make uh, the pool yeah. even smaller and so and so in the context of everything that you you were just describing the the people then that are more uh physically fit like the the ones that are like more inclined towards that are the people that are going to be less inclined right. towards um you know 
getting involved in, you know, like you, like what you were saying with the Austrian economic stuff that, you know, they see this as just a, a dumb waste at best. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's rough. And that's why I get after that purpose thing. I mean, one of the things that we're doing that's, that's working, um, from what I understand, it's, it's seeing some success as a future soldier program where they're taking people in junior ROTC and like training them up, you know, so we're, we're dedicating resources in order to increase that percentage of people that are uh, available. Cause I mean, I think a lot of people have the capacity to get into shape, you know, yeah. and you know, they yeah. just, they need a little bit of purpose, motivation and direction. Um, but that's the, the whole purpose thing is uh, it's, it puts me in a really weird position to try and talk about that with respect to the army because my purpose is supporting and defending the constitution. And I, I don't feel like a lot of senior leaders uh, take the constitution seriously. I mean, they might, they might think they do, but I, I, in actuality, I don't think they do because the COVID mandate, they showed that like it, it proved that, that, that broke trust for me um, with, with all the senior leaders because they had an opportunity to say, Hey, you have an issue submit a religious accommodation, right? Like it, like that didn't happen anywhere. I didn't see that anywhere, but it's too easy. They could have just encouraged soldiers to do that. It's like, Hey, you feel uncomfortable. Like why, you know, cause we have this means of doing that in, uh, in army doctrine, master resiliency training, which is based on the positive psychology research out of UPenn. Um, you know, there's a skill in that training called detect icebergs, which is like something happens, there's an activating event, and you have a, an emotional response that's out of proportion. Because there's an iceberg, right? You hit the tip of it, but underneath there's these beliefs that are driving that emotional reaction. And so what, what you would do if you were a good leader is just say, well, what's going on? You know, why do you feel that way? Let's, let's, try, and, let's try and figure it out and try and communicate. Instead of being like, you are full of shit, like you just don't want to get the shot get them. And if you don't, guess what? You're getting a dishonorable discharge. All right. And you're going to get put on every detail I can put you on in the meantime. So um, they had an opportunity to stand up for the constitution, um, but it would have looked bad politically because they understood their boss and their boss's boss and their boss's boss's boss wanted to maximize uptake. Um, So like, it didn't matter what they thought. Um, They, they weren't willing to, to, to assume that risk. Mm-hmm. And I, I, what I'm trying to get out with this is that I feel really awkward about trying to talk about what your purpose should be in the army, because mm-hmm. mine is very, I don't think it's common. I don't think it's very mm-hmm. common. I think it's relatively rare. And so when I talk about purpose, I actually generally these days, I talk about in, like purpose in spite of the army, you know, mm-hmm. like, you, there's all these reasons for you to be healthy and fit. And like, you look at the rate of veteran suicide and it's like, if you don't want that to be you, you need to start working on getting your shit together right now. And you have an mm-hmm. opportunity right yeah. now. We got resources. You're getting a paycheck. Like you will perform better as a soldier, right? If you are fit, but you also need it for all these other things. Even if you're feeling demotivated and you feel like everything around you is stupid, like, it's up to you to to take care of yourself. And, uh, and, and, oh, by the way, that, that does help out the unit and that meets my mission, right. Which is mm-hmm. to yeah. get soldiers as ready as they can be. 
Mm-hmm. I had a um uh there was a guy that I that I trained in uh, martial arts with. Um he was a CB, so he was in the Navy. Um and he was in uh I believe he was in a rack maybe two tours. Um and he he said that martial arts saved his life because after he came back and got out, he was in a really dark place and felt purposeless and you know, had some existential crisis. Um, but once he started doing martial arts and getting his, uh, his fitness level up and his conditioning level up, he started to feel like he had a purpose again. He felt like he had more still yet to contribute to his family, to his friends, to society as a whole. And so I, I can empathize with, with what you're talking about, uh, with this the struggle of um of veterans and and servicemen active service members uh because i've seen it firsthand of of not only where the dark roads can lead to but also uh what what can be what can be gained or achieved with you know a little bit of self um self-determined struggle if i could put it that way yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if you if you just reframe from you know just trying to be comfortable or just trying to survive to it's I mean I I think we got to feel useful, you know, like we have to be useful, and that's that's my big concern with the the whole narrative and the global war on terror is you, you had a bunch of people that sacrificed a lot and felt useful in a certain context. And that, that context was stripped from you. And so you, you've got to replace it with something. And it doesn't have to be this, this highfalutin thing. It could be just as simple as, like you said, you know, you start training, you're like, wow, you know, like I can improve at this skill in, in real ways. And I can build connection, like real connection with people and build camaraderie. I can be a part of a community. Um, and then all of a sudden, like light bulb clicks. And then, you know, you're building yourself up, especially if you got a family and you start taking care of your family. And it's like, I mean, that's that's all I need, right? It's like I, I have my family. Um, like everything else is just icing on the cake. But that's that's priority number one for me. Like I have a, a use, like I have this. Nobody can take that away from me. Um, if you don't have family, it's a lot harder, but there's stuff that you can find, but it, like, it's, it's harder to find it now in the military. And that's, that's what I'm trying to freaking get these folks to, to talk about. And I think that's why people aren't coming in is because they see it's something that people can sense, even if they can't articulate it. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm curious about, um, well, how much time have we got? We got about 15 minutes left, right? Grant? Yeah, I got time. Okay. I'm curious. Um, so what does what does your job actually entail? So are you, um, yeah, well, what would like a, 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 tic- a typical day at work look like for you in yeah. you know, so doing I, what you do? So being a physical therapist, like I, I think it's important to still keep seeing patients because that's that's my primary training. And I also feel like that connects you to reality. 
because like all the bureaucracy on the bureaucratic side of trying to like develop systems um, and, and manage programs, I'm skeptical how effective that all really is because there's a huge temptation to elevate perception over reality, which is what like Elon brought up late stage bureaucracy. Like that, that's where we're at essentially. Like everything is all about perception and it's feasible to make a perception a certain way, like changing the reality in a, in a significant way, especially for a really large organization that is in the clutches of late stage bureaucracy. Like I'm skeptical that it can be done, but I, I try. So half, half my day now I see patients. Like I, I, in the mornings I go to patient care. Sometimes there's meetings that I go to on Microsoft teams and stuff to, to stay coordinated. Um, but I, I try and see at least a couple patients every day in order to have that person in front of me. And then I, my job is to get them feeling better and to take care of them. And if I don't, then I failed. And that's feedback that I need to know so that I can improve like, and reflect on that. Um, yeah. And then the other time is, you know, in a, in a division, you know, our division's got like 16,000 soldiers and it's got four brigades, which are the subdivisions of a, a division. And so the holistic health and fitness program in the army is designed to be at the brigade level. So I'm just there to kind of smooth things over, help provide resources, um, try and try and give good ideas, but I try not to be directive because all the people on the teams that work at the brigade level, we got physical therapists, occupational therapists, dietitians, strength coaches, and athletic trainers. Um, and you know, techs that, that go along with those uh, professional positions and, they're all subject matter experts. They know what they're doing. They're smart mm -hmm. folks. They're competent. I don't want to tell them how to do their job because they're on the ground and they're seeing patients. And as soon as I'm like, hey, I got this really great idea. Everybody in the division should do it like this. What I'm doing is I'm making it less efficient because, you know, that person on the ground has all of the expertise that I do in order to design a program like especially the physical therapists, we're talking about injury prevention uh, programs. So I, I try to let them do their thing and support where needed. And so far, it's I think it's working really well. We're in a weird position where we don't have all the personnel that we're supposed to, but we're getting the rest of them over the course of the next year or so. And so that's going to be my next focus is I'm just onboarding additional people and help setting up the programs for, you know, three to five years down the road because that's how long it typically takes for these programs to get implemented. And there's like issues with facilities and funding and we're, we're working that out, but that, that's pretty much it. I see patients and then I try and support the brigade teams that actually do the work on the ground, okay. training soldiers on nutrition, providing patient care, mm -hmm. setting up reconditioning programs. So if somebody's injured, they have a, you know, they do physical training with a, a group of people that are also injured with a subject matter expert to lead it, to make sure that they're not doing anything stupid that's going to interfere with their recovery. Um, teaching soldiers like the latest and greatest uh, aspects of strength and conditioning, you know, to try and get them to, hey, like mm -hmm. maybe distance running, is it going to be the best way for you guys to improve your scores on the fitness test? Like got to do more mm -hmm. resistance training, got to train legs more because people think that running is training legs. It is not. <laughs> no. so, well, that leads um, that leads me to just a really quick second question. If you were in the position to be like, uh, you know, um, 
army fitness dictator, would would there be anything that you would like that you can think of that you would like to see changed or implemented just in in regards to I don't know if it's like over like about um like all around nutrition or or training programs or like yeah, do you have any thoughts on that's that? That's a that's a really good question. Maybe like 5 years ago I would have said yes, but now <laughs> No, dude, because there's like I like to think so like I take take yoga for instance. I I love I love to hate on yoga, right? I love to be like, "Oh, I'm stupid for tactical athletes." But the fact of the matter is we have some uh some positions like mechanics, right? They got to be in these funky positions for hours and hours at a time. I almost think that mechanics shouldn't be loading their spines too much, like doing squats and deadlifts and stuff. They should be doing more like yoga, body weight, calisthenics type stuff. Um, especially if they got to be in these weird positions for prolonged periods. So just, we have such a diversity in the job requirements that there's no one size fits all prescription. There's just not. Um, in fact, most of the jobs in the army aren't super physically demanding. The ones that are super, like the most physically demanding job, in my opinion, is probably light infantry, like airborne light infantry, um, even specifically to go even further, 11 Charlies, which are the mortarmen, like dismounted mortarmen, because they carry, you know, like I, I've talked to dudes at Ford, they carried like 120 pounds of stuff, like miles every day, just on patrol. Ugh. You know, you have to be very, like everything's got to be strong. Feet, hips, like legs, you know, your trunk endurance has to be really, really good or else you're going to get broken off doing that. Um, so their fitness requirements is insane. Meanwhile, we have 42 alphas, like pack, like admin people that process paperwork and that's their job. So it's like, they got to go to field and wear kit and like help out with stuff, but it's nothing nearly so physically demanding. So there's definitely not a one size fits all solution. Like a lot of people in the army don't even really need to train. I mean, a lot of the senior folks don't train, frankly, and I'm not going to be the one to be like, you, you got to train. I think everybody benefits from doing some resistance training, right? I think mm -hmm. resistance training is a little more important than cardio, but cardio is also very important for health. But how you get that cardio in, there's like a million and one ways you can do it. You can do high intensity intervals for a short period of time. You can do low intensity, long duration and mod everything in between. Like it's just so individual. Um, the one thing that I would say that needs to die is there's certain trunk exercises that I think like almost nobody should be doing. So sit-ups, nobody should be doing. Um, reverse, yes. reverse crunches, <laughs> like uh, Superman's, like where you lay on the ground, like arch your back. Yeah. Nobody should be doing those. So like, and that that's based on my, um, my very favorable opinion of Dr. Stuart McGill. So I'm a big Stu McGill fanboy. I love that guy. I think that he is right about almost everything. Um, I say almost just because I I don't know of anywhere he's been wrong, but maybe there's maybe I could find something to disagree with him on. But so far I haven't. Uh, I think the dude is is brilliant, and I think uh, you know th there's just if you understand how the spine works and its functions and its roles and how like really everything in physical training, there's trade-offs when you're trying to optimize performance. And there's also a big difference between performance and health where like the highest performers in the world 
get to a point where they are no longer healthy. Like you are risking stuff in order to achieve the highest level of performance, especially at a lot of different sports that have particular requirements. So, um, yeah, it's really hard to say because there's some things that increase performance, but they decrease health. Um, but sit-ups like our garbage exercise that in the military they did for a really long time. And like, I'll give you the Stu McGill thing that he says all the time. Basically every sit-up, if you're an average size dude, like 5'10", 150, 160 pounds, that's 3,400 3, newtons of spine compression. And the National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health sets a workplace uh, repetition exposure to limit of spine compression at 3,400 newtons. So it's like every rep, you're exceeding that NIOSH limit that one one aspect of our government set. And like, meanwhile, the DOD is having people in <laughs> mass do speed sit-ups every day. Um, and the problem is, is like the, a lot of people are still doing it. If they just drop that and they switch to planks, side planks, um, exercises that train endurance of the trunk musculature without moving the spine to end range, um, that would be good. Because the spine's got to be able to move. It's designed to be able to move. We want it to be able to move to produce certain movements, but high performance movements where there's a lot of force going through the spine, we want it to be in a neutral lumbopelvic position. So like, no matter what the sport, when you're generating power, that trunk is locked in, in a more or less neutral position. And then when it goes out of the position, it's all relaxed. So like the classic example is golf, where it's like, you're hitting the ball, everything's stiff. And then everything relaxes and you fall through and then you get that extension and twist. But if you're trying to like train the golf swing through the extension under load, that's going to jack your spine up. Um, so yeah, all that to say, no one size fits all answer, but I would not do Russian twists, speed sit-ups, reverse crunches, um, any of that stuff. Like there's particular applications for it, but I don't think that, uh, there's any military occupational athletes that should be doing those exercises. But you're, you're, uh, you have a really good article on your H2F man, um, sub stack that I was looking over earlier. Um, where it's just basically like where you essentially say the, the same thing where you're like, I can't give you a, I can't give everybody a one size fits all like P90X style program, beach body, whatever, um, that you can just do for 30 days and then it'll, you'll be in the best shape of your life for whatever it is that you're going to do. You, you very much say it's like you are you, and that is different than everybody else. So what you want to do and what fits you, uh, is going to be different than everybody else. So here are just simply the principles that you can look at and determine for yourself what works best for you. And I wish I could remember uh, off the top of my head what it was called. Um, yeah, that was uh, the, the the chapter, right? The grant. The, yeah, or, yeah. That's going to be in the, yeah. in, in the book that I'm working on. Yeah. Oh. It, it was kind of just kind of like general. Yeah. What was it? Just general fitness principles or something like yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. 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 I, one of them was called like I did one on nutrition and I did one on uh, one on exercise. I think exercise for health. That's what it's called. Exercise yes, for health. Yes, that was the one. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that feedback. That's that's exactly yeah, no. what those the message that I was trying to get across. Um, dude, it, yeah, it's it's tough. 
like with respect to P90X and CrossFit, another factor that's like hard for people to appreciate that I don't think I put in there is that if you train your ass off with really high intensity, you will feel good and you will get into really good shape really fast. But if you don't do it with good mechanics and and you train with like like not thinking about your spine posture, not yeah. worrying about knee valgus, any of this stuff, you can get away with that for years sometimes but you can't get away with it forever so a lot of people like look at the literature on uh biomechanics and like predicting injury risk and they'll be like oh it doesn't matter because we didn't find a difference like i'm I'm gonna tell you that research is missing uh the big picture and that's that you know people are going to exceed the capacity of certain tissues that aren't designed to be loaded in that way but it might take years so like, mm-hmm. for example, if your knee valgus really bad when you're squatting, like your knees are caving way in, um, that puts a lot of pressure on your medial collateral ligaments. And if you're light and you're not lifting heavy weights, it might feel great for years. But if you progressively load it at some point, um, you know, one of your ligaments might fail. And then boom, like if it's your ACL or something, that, mm-hmm. that sucks because most people do not compensate well from an ACL rupture without uh, surgical intervention. That's a huge process. And that's really hard. Like people have a really hard time performing as well as they did beforehand. Like if you're an athlete um, and the back is like, that's how many people have back pain. It's like over 50% of the military. And it's, so it really, that's one of those subtle things that, you know, it's hard to appreciate unless you've lived through it, you know, and I, I have like, cause I've trained, I trained really stupid for a really long time. And now my margin for error with my back is very small. So it's like, I feel good, but I have to train like every day. And I got, I got to do a mm-hmm. bunch of particular stuff. I can't sit for more than a certain period of time. And, um, I just have to be, I have to be mm-hmm. on it. Whereas like, if you haven't wrecked those, tissues and it just abused them for years and years and years, then you're fine. You know, <laughs> this issue's all good. Like you can sit forever and you know, like you go on an airplane trip and like you're good. Like you sit in a plane for 17 hours, you get up and be like, ah, I'm a little stiff. You know, that would be a, that's a significant event for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Trying to like travel and stuff. Um, and, and, you know, but you perform well. And that's the thing that tricks people is you see people performing really, really well. Um, and you experience it yourself and you're like, ah, you know, everybody is not training hard. It's a pussy. Like you just got to train hard. And you know, it's, everything's all fun and games and like awesome until you get an injury. And, you know, then even then after people get injured, it gets better pretty quick. If they're young, a couple weeks, three weeks off, then you come back. And then you get into the cycle and usually what happens is people get into the cycle where they tweak something and they come, they come on and off and they keep tweaking that same thing until they have to like go back to the drawing board and completely like revamp their exercise, come way down in the weights. Uh, what happens is you compensate to, to be able to like see you're, you're squatting and your back is rounding like crazy, like you're butt winking in the bottom of your squat and you get up to the point yeah. where you're, you're where you're squatting three plates for reps and you're like, yeah, like feel freaking great. Well, maybe 
the only way that you could get to parallel with a neutral lumbar pelvic posture is with like 185, right? Like that's really legit. That's what you can do for reps, but you can use all these compensations and you get more weight hard eagle wise to go back, you know, yeah. much easier to tell yourself like, Oh, this is a temporary setback. As soon as you're feeling better, you do it. And people do that. And then that's, that's how you really wreck yourself is by getting married to like, I am this strong, like this is where I'm at physically. And then uh, continuing to beat up those tissues um, for years, but the body's so freaking resilient. That's usually what it takes. If you just tweak something once and then you, you fix your technique or you come down and wait, adjust, and then gradually progress up, like you'd be good to go. Like I'm like the people that can learn that stuff, the, the easy way uh, they're, they're in really good shape. Um, but uh, most people got to learn it the hard way, unfortunately, yeah, because it just takes so long. Otherwise uh, it, 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 it takes too long or longer than most people are either like willing or aware um, in order to um, go in a, like to, to move up in, a, in weights in a way that they're not, like you're saying, making all these tiny adjustments uh, in order to compensate for the, for their actual weakness at the time, because they, you know, they gotta, you know, they've got to get stronger like every week, for instance. Yeah. And so then they, they start gains. to, you got to get yeah. the gains, but, we get, but then you, it becomes what, like you write the gains on paper rather than actually getting the actual gains. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like, I mean, other people see you lifting in the gym, you know, it becomes ego lifting. But the, the word yeah. for it that I think you guys will appreciate the concept is path dependence. People get path dependent mm -hmm. on crappy technique. And, um, you know, at first you can only lift a tiny bit more using those compensatory patterns. And so it's really not a big deal if you catch it early on and you just start lifting with good technique, but, uh, or doing whatever, you know, doing whatever activity that you got to do. Cause some people have work tasks that, you know, you get really efficient at. Um, but uh, yeah, if you, if you start off with crappy technique and then you overload that, you're going to get really good at that. And then all of a sudden, like you're, that's path dependence where you're like, like you can do a lot with that particular technique, but then doing it, like changing it to what you, you probably should have done in the first place. Like mm -hmm. you, you got to dial it way back and it, it just becomes harder and harder once you get further down that path. If I might indulge myself, <laughs> indulge uh, for as long as grant is willing yeah um i'm gonna go a bit into the biology here the biological weeds for a second um not too deep um but one of the one of the interesting things that i was reading recently was uh how the adaptations to exercise seem to be um produced by stem cell mm, production uh, so you have these, you have a, a mechanical load, let's say that affects the, the muscle fibers, which then, uh, stimulate stem cell production. And then the stem cells go on to create, um, the myonuclei and, uh, whatever various like cardiovascular adaptations. Um, and so it seems, it seems really interesting to me that, that, that what was going, what was going on. So I had a couple of questions here. First off, um, would you beyond beyond the mere like m like actual like muscle itself like doing a bicep curl 
um, aside from a stem cell release release uh, or activation in the bicep, um, is there any like non-local effects to uh, stem cell releases? Uh, Ooh, that's a good question. Yeah, I don't I don't think there's good uh, evidence to show that there's systemic effects. Um, mm -hmm. Like, cause supposedly, right, like doing squats releases more, like has yeah. greater hormonal effects, releases more testosterone. Mm -hmm. I think that those effects are probably overstated a little bit. Um, there's a lot of really good reasons to do squats. I think probably the biggest reason is that it loads a bunch of stuff, right? Yeah. So you're just, you're loading a bunch of stuff. It's more efficient. Um, it makes it harder as an exercise, but also it helps you coordinate against a larger load. It helps you coordinate your whole body to move in real space. And I think it has more, um, uh, carryover. I think it relates more to activities of daily living. Um, mm -hmm. so I think there's a lot of benefits to doing, uh, like, I think there's systemic benefits to, to loading, but not, 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 not in any physiological way that I know of. Um, so mm -hmm. it's like, yeah, the, the more that you load, um, like, you know, you, you'll see that like there's there's cardiovascular benefits more from hypertrophy style training, but that that just makes sense, right? Because you get more cardiovascular fatigue, it's more taxing on that system, and you get uh, specific adaptations to impose demands. So you can get really in the weeds with particular physiological adaptations, but um, if you don't want to have to know the exact mechanisms, then just know that the said principle is real which is that there are specific adaptations to impose demands. So I'll give you a couple examples of things like physiologically that I, I do know how yeah. they work. Um, so like you, you gave one, which is like uh, you got um, loading of your contractile tissue, uh, you know, causes the, the myonucleation. Um, and that's like the big rate limiting factor for muscle, muscle growth, I think. You know, there's other stuff that happens within mm -hmm. the muscle that can cause it to be bigger. Like it can get um, uh, enhanced capacity to store glycogen. So then it's going to store more water and that's going to make yeah. it bigger. You know, more mitochondrial, like higher mitochondrial density. Um, you know, certain certain training methods do that. Um, yeah. So there's a bunch of different things that can happen with muscle. Um, one of the coolest ones, and this relates to spine stuff, and it's, I think it's something important for everybody to know. If they're trying to train... Uh, their bones to withstand a lot of load. Um, mm -hmm. Bone acts as a, a piezoelectric crystal. So you load it and it creates an electrical charge. And then calcium ions can come attach to that and then form calluses. Now, if you repeat that loading, like the, a significant enough loading to cause that charge to develop, uh, more than every five days, then it can knock that callus off as it's forming. So like elite level power lifters, if they're trying to train for longevity and be able to do what they're doing for a long time, like Ed Cohn is a, a prime example, then they don't want to load, uh, say the spine more than once every five days with those really high loads. Um, but you can, you can look, um, a tissue like bone, like at an x-ray, if you look closely, there's all these lines. And that's mm -hmm. like, that's the lines that force was laid in and that 
um, you, you get everything laid down to withstand the exact direction that forces were applied to that bone. And that's kind of the, the general concept of how that works is it's, it creates this electrical charge that the hydrogen ions can stick to, um, or sorry, the hydrogen ions getting confused with, uh, <laughs> metabolic fatigue, um, the calcium yeah. ions that, that yeah. can stick to and form those calluses. But everywhere you look in the body, you know, there is a physiologic mechanism that, that makes you adapt to the demands that you place on it. And it's, it's such an elegant system. Um, and it's just, it's, it's beautiful. Like it's a beautiful system. And I get, I get excited when I see somebody that, um, is performing well, uh, because of like, if I go to the gym and somebody's doing like a Romanian deadlift, a perfect form, like that gives me like a dopamine hit. I'm like, I'm like yes. <laughs> You know, and if I see somebody doing it with oh, crappy form with like full lumbar flexion, I'm like, it does yeah. the exact opposite. I'm like, ah, no, no. you know, because it's like the effort is the same, you know, to do a yeah. an exercise with crappy technique versus good technique. Um, and so that's one of the reasons I love what I do so much is because it's like I, you know, I could take the same amount of effort that you're putting in and just give you some extra uh, guidance. And you can get so much more out of it. Like instead of it eating up your capacity, um, it's going to enhance your capacity over time. Um, but yeah, I'm, there, there's so much cool stuff uh, that happens at the cellular level. Um, and just like mechanotransduction by itself, that concept, that's why I look at rehab as optimal loading. Like that's the one concept. You know, you have people... Uh, Ice stuff, compression. I don't. I don't do any of that stuff. Optimal loading. If you get injured, it's because the load capacity of a tissue was exceeded. Period. If it happens mm -hmm. really, really all of a sudden, fast, like boom, that's an acute injury. You exceeded that tissue really dramatically, really fast. Overuse injuries. It's just chronic accumulation of uh, fatigue of that tissue without enough recovery between the exposures. And so eventually you get to the point of tissue failure. So either or the, the capacity of the tissue is being exceeded. And the answer is you have to, you know, reduce the load that's going to that tissue. So you're doing something to keep it loaded. And this is something that gets controversial with things like back pain because people get wrapped around the axle with uh, like pain neuroscience. And they're like, well, the injury was months ago. And so now it's, it's all like, you're just sensitized. And that does happen. But at the end of the day, they got sensitized for reason and they're staying sensitized for reason. So like some tissue is getting overloaded. And if you can find whatever tissue that is and, and you know, modulate that and take that load away mm -hmm. and then, you know, teach them how to move in a way that doesn't continually do that and then load them in a way that they're going to be able to build the capacity to do their activities, daily living or their sport. Like that's that's the Stu McGill paradigm. Like that's why that's why I'm so appreciative of him is because I I apply what he's what he does for the lumbar spine to to everything that I do for rehab and I think it works really really well. The thing is, is it's not sexy because people want like yeah. a like oh like a you know dry needle like the acupuncture needle and you know like I I've, I've done those treatments um like cupping like all these modalities to to they modulate pain. Like they don't make healing go any faster. Um, they modulate pain. 
But the real secret sauce, like what really does it is the loading. You know, mm-hmm. you, you take the loading down, you know, because their envelope of function shrunk because that tissue capacity was exceeded. You stay within that envelope and you load it just right. And that envelope will slowly expand and get back to where, yeah. you're, where you want to be. And um, did it just like as a concept, for, I think everybody should understand that. Because if you get injured, yeah. that's what's going on. And if you're injured and it still hurts months and months later, then, you know, be honest with yourself. What are you doing? Are you still trying to like train through stuff? Are you, mm-hmm. you know? Um, no, that's actually a really good concept that I'd not really thought about or considered, but it makes total sense um, when you put it in in that kind of perspective to just like, you know, if, if you're injured in some kind of a way, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to like, well, maybe in some cases, yeah, you do need to give it rest if like your wrist is broken. Uh, but other than that, you know, dial it back and then find out what's not painful and, you know, doesn't exceed the threshold of that tissue at that time. And, you know, that's your new baseline for the time being just to, you know, if you can accept that for the, for whatever the, the time it takes to build it back up, then, you know, that'll, that's actually going to heal you faster than either doing nothing with it or injuring yourself again by trying to go too far too quickly. Yeah. I mean, doing uh, nothing is actually really bad because your body is designed to move. Like, mm-hmm. like where, where does the, the stuff that you need, the nutrients that you need to heal? So like we were talking about physiological mechanisms the reason optimal loading is so critical is because of mechanotransduction. The information that the tissue needs to build itself back up, right, like in the right orientation, just like I was talking about bone and stuff, no matter what the tissue is, it needs that load to know how to heal itself. But yeah. it can't get the stuff that it needs to heal itself without movement. Like that's mm-hmm. that's how like there's no pressure in your veins. Like your veins, in order to get blood back to the heart, it requires muscle contraction. You know, so if you're sitting around doing nothing, like your health declines very, very quickly. Like bed rest destroys your health for that reason. Um, and like the most dramatic example is like the cardiovascular health of astronauts, you know, because their body's not fighting against gravity anymore. And so they have yeah. to like do creative things to stay fit or else they're mm-hmm. like in zero gravity. Your health really just takes a nosedive. Um you got to move like you got to move, but people take that too far and they, they move. They're like, Oh, you just push through. And it's like, no, cause you can move and you could exceed that tissue's capacity. And it's like picking a scab at that point. So you want to mm-hmm. move as much as you can without crossing that line. And that's, that's, that's an art and it's trial and error. And that's, that's why I think it's something everybody should, should know. Cause like, you're, you're the only one that's, that, that's the thing about pain is pain is so useful. It's such useful mm-hmm. information because it's what you need to guide that process. And people look at pain as the enemy. It's not, it's your friend. Like it, it tells you exactly, uh, exactly how much you can move and get away with. Um, and like you, you learn the difference between soreness um, and like, like crossing that line. And it's yeah. like, it's a continuum, you know? 
All right. If I just one, just one more, just <laughs> well, one ask more. ask Grant. He's the one. Can I can Very I go good. for one absolutely. more? Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, okay. All right. So when I was reading Exercise for Health, yeah, you know, I was reading, I was reading through, and then I kind of uh, skimmed a bit because I was it was coming up on this interview, um, and I saw that you had a reference to the Colorado experiment, which I found oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, because then I get to ask you uh, a fun question, which is. You know, you talked earlier about uh, CrossFit and P90X and then uh, also about, um, you know, everybody being slightly different and, you know, kind of your your goals can vary and, and all these different things. Um, I I had the, the privilege of uh, training in, I don't know if you know who he is, but uh, Dr. Doug McGuff. Um, oh, who, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The the emergency medicine physician, right? Yeah. 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 Okay. So yeah. he has a uh, he has an exercise studio. Yeah, that's the guy. Uh, he has an exercise studio in Seneca, South Carolina, and I had the privilege of training there for some number of time, working with MedEx equipment, doing the super, super slow style um, workouts. And oh, my God, I, I've never been like that was the worst experiences of my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, de- delayed onset muscle soreness. Is what you're talking oh, about. my God. Yeah. Uh, well, well, that but also. Um, doing, doing the super slow style, you know, eight to eight or nine exercises or so, um, like full body workouts taking roughly 20 minutes or so. I I would be on the floor for a half hour nauseous, uh, just because the, the accumulated byproducts of, uh, exercises, it was, yeah. it was just through the roof. Yeah, so, that's what I meant when I, when I said hydrogen ions, like I talk about that every once yeah. in a while. So that's why that <laughs> jumped out. That's hydrogen ions. Yeah. That's why. Yeah. That's what causes it's that not fun. magic feeling. I don't like them. They're bad. Um, but, but you know, when you were talking about with like steady state exercises and, you know, everything having its place, I, I really like high intensity exercise for the, for the, for that very reason, because it, be, it allows you to, I think, maximally, maximally stimulate adaptation in the shortest amount of time with the, like the widest range of benefits. But that said, it also is very mentally demanding on top of the physical demand. And it is. I, I know that not everyone can, um, go there mentally. Like I, the guy, even when he was training me, gave me anecdotes about how, you know, they're, they're like 30 minutes away from Clemson. And so they would have, sometimes they would have like Clemson football guys go in there, uh, and train with them. And some of these, like, you know, six, five, 250 pound, like brick houses couldn't even finish like two exercises because it was, it was too intense. And so I was wondering if you, if you think it has a place, um, as a modality. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It has a place. It's, it's one of those things where it's just, just like you said, so not only, um, are there mental differences between people, but there's also physiological differences in terms of how well people tolerate hydrogen ion accumulation. Um, Mm. so, uh, you know, some, some people, they don't accumulate as much and some people just tolerate them being at really, really high levels. So, um, there's variability there. There's variability in terms of your, uh, mental style, like whether or not you like, you know, 
sustained effort or you like mm-hmm. going freaking just balls <laughs> of the wall. Um, what it is, what it is definitely is it's more efficient in terms of time. So yeah. high intensity interval training uh, definitely produces the same adaptations to exercise uh, and, and cardiorespiratory uh, enhancements that longer duration times do, you know, with, with lower intensity. Um, but there are some factors to consider. So one of them is that you cannot do it every day, right? Yeah. If you try and do hit every day, you're not doing hit, you know, and this is something that like, I like Greg Doucette a lot for the record. So like he does a lot of like pure entertainment stuff when he's talking training, um, like second to none, like his, his, his advice is like spot on. Um, and his, his understanding of, of these principles is spot on. Um, what, what he says in terms of, uh, hit is that if you're doing it every day, you're not doing hit. You cannot produce maximal effort like that, that frequently, yeah. uh, your intensity is going to fall off very quickly. Um, it's going to eventually wreck your nervous system and, you know, you, I, I say wreck. I don't mean like in a bad way. I mean, like you're going to need to recover or you're yeah. not going to be able to produce that level of intensity and you could measure it. So like you're doing 400 meter sprints every day, like your times are going to start suffering. You might feel like you're going hundred percent, but you are not able to go hundred percent. So mm-hmm. uh, for tactical athletes, I my favorite combo for getting people to run a two mile as fast as possible is 400 meter sprints once or twice a week with as much rest as you need between the intervals, only like three or four max effort. Like exactly like you said, where like after the last one, you feel like you're going to puke and incline treadmill walking because you can dial in your heart rate just right. And it's low impact and you can do that every day because it's low intensity. So there are different adaptations that you're targeting there. Um, with the high intensity stuff that helps more with building mitochondrial density. It helps with building extra capillaries in parallel. So it's, it's easier to get the to blood to the muscle. Um, and then the longer duration, uh, low to moderate intensity where you're keeping the heart rate between 130, 160, um, you get that full stretch in your left ventricle every time the heart beats. And so that actually increases the, uh, your stroke volume uh, over time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, really, really well. So like targeting those two adaptations mm-hmm. specifically, I think sets you up not, not only um, specifically for the two mile, because like when you're doing the four hundreds, building up the mitochondrial density and the increased blood flow to the muscles specific to running. Right. So you're training those. And then you can also for a 400, you're going to really focus on your technique. So, you know, people talk about running styles and stuff. The most efficient technique that, that you can run at, you're going to self-select when you go for a run, right? You go for a run, you're doing what you can is most efficient for you metabolically, not necessarily yeah. biomechanically. So if you want to evenly distribute forces across the ankle and knee and hip, then midfoot strike is probably best. Like if you want to evenly distribute, not, I'm not talking what's fastest, and what's most metabolically yeah. efficient because that varies. The best way to distribute force is between those three joints. So to limit your risk of overuse injuries. And then like, I'm not going to make any more arguments about it because I'm getting long with it. 
All I'll say is that it builds up the muscle. You can focus. You can do like 170 to 180 uh, beats per minute for your Mm -hmm. foot strikes. And then if you are uh, foot striking at that cadence, then you're probably mid foot striking because you don't have enough time to heel, like heel strike and roll over your foot. So that, that for a lot of people, they don't need to do other running drills. You just get your cadence to match up and everything just kind of fixes itself over time. Um, so I, I tell people to do that 400s incline treadmill walking. And, and that's what I do for return to run, you know? So like somebody has got an injury, right. They got yeah. that decreased window of function. Um, that's what I'm having them do because they can tolerate the incline treadmill walking a lot sooner. They can tolerate the impact of running, but then as soon as they can tolerate running, having them run three or four, four hundreds, that's only a mile. I mean, they're only running a mile a week. Like you, you can handle that pretty early on in rehab. And then usually they come off of their temporary profile and they're boom. They're sometimes they're able to set PRs for their, uh, for their two mile. Um, so I'm proud of that protocol. I like that protocol. Yeah. And usually it makes total sense. Like people do jog, like walk to run where they jog and walk. Like, I think that that's not as, not as cool, but it it also works. Um, I think, I think a combination, (laughs) I think a combination is best and and hit definitely like intensity. You get more from, from less time. You can decrease your volume and get similar uh, results with higher intensity and with decreased volume, especially if you got joint issues, it's a way of working around that. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, Grant, we're going to have to have you on again yep. to, <laughs> to get into more. Yeah, I'd love to. Elon, the, yeah, Elon awesome mentioned the tonic intersectionality and yeah, yeah. bureaucracy. I'd love to talk about that stuff. Um, yes. We'll, ha- we'll oh, have you on. That'll uh, be for the next one. Yeah, we'll have you on for a part two sometimes. I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry, Elon, for hijacking. That's my bad. <laughs> All right. So, uh, again, Grant's uh, substacks are H2F man. And uh, the Radical American Mind, which is radicalamerican.substack.com. So check them out. Check out the link tree. And uh, yeah, we'll talk again soon, Grant. And all. And uh, you can all, you can see us. You can see Grant and me and Luke and the other guys on the Tonic 7. I believe we're going we're gonna to do it. We're, we're going to live stream, right, on Sundays. So yeah, we're probably live. Sundays at, uh, at noon, I believe. So um, Eastern? Noon Eastern, yeah. So, but we'll see. Uh, yeah, we'll see if that time sticks, but uh, you can check us out there. So thanks again, Grant. And yeah, uh, we'll talk thanks later. for having me. Yeah, it was good to meet yeah, you, right. Elon. Good to meet you, Adam. Thanks for coming, yeah, on. Good Same to here. Take care. All right. Take care. Good evening.